You can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Revelation 3. Um, I'm going to put a graphic on the screen that kind of tells you how to find Revelation 3 if you're not sure how to find it. Yeah, that's up there. Take your time. <laughs> that's a pretty good one. And oh so true. Most of you found Revelation 3 at this point? Okay. Guys, I, I'm, I'm exhausted from all the stress from this morning. I'm just going to take it easy a little bit this morning. I'll still preach, but, I mean, let's be honest. I preach every week for the most part. I'm a little tired. I feel like I've done, I've done the work. I've served a long time. I've worked really hard. So, you guys... Enjoy the morning. I'll, I'll touch on a few things here and there. But, yeah. Is anyone getting uncomfortable yet? <laughs> Let me ask you a question. If I seriously did this, I'm joking. Please understand, this is a joke. But let me ask you a question. If I, as the pastor of this church preached like this, what would you feel? Would you feel like you're getting your tithes worth? Your money's worth? Would you feel like maybe I'm not quite doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Would you maybe look at me and go, I know he's supposed to do more than that. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm uncomfortable even sitting down and crossing a leg in this setting. This feels a little too laid back even for me. I'm wearing a t-shirt on stage and this is too much. Have you ever thought about whether or not God would see us this way? Have you ever asked yourself if God was to speak Send me a letter, like, like Jesus does to the seven letters of the churches. If God sent me a letter, kind of giving me an update, giving me a play-by-play -play of how he sees my walk with him, what would he say? I think that's one of the questions we should be asking as we've gone through this entire series. And today we're going to look at a church that uh, they don't give a, get, get a good recommendation from Jesus. In their letter. Uh, so let me give you some background. We've been in the book of Revelation for several weeks now. Uh, we're in the section of Revelation where Jesus has given John seven letters to seven churches. A and each letter has a structure. I'll talk about that structure here in a little bit. But each letter has a structure. And there's, there's things that Jesus says about himself. And then he uh, gives his critique of the churches, tells them about their strengths and weaknesses. And then he you know, kind of calls them to repent and tells them, if you don't repent, here's the consequences. Uh, and we've covered several churches, several of these letters. Today we're covering the letter that was sent to the church in a city called Sardis. Interesting name, Sardis. Now, Sardis was a pretty important city in that part of the world. I want you to put the map up on the screen that shows where these seven churches are located. So the number five on the map is Sardis. 
And Sardis was on this trade route, but it was down in the bottom of this really fertile valley. Like they could, they could grow anything in this part of the world. And they had a population of about 60,000. So it's not as big as, say, Ephesus uh, or, or, or Smyrna or even Pergamum. It's a little smaller, but it was a pretty important city. Now, Sardis had this really cool landscape. They had this huge, uh, a very steep mountain right next to the city. The city kind of laid in the valley, and they had this really steep mountain right next to it. And you could walk up this long area on the side of the mountain that was almost like a natural ramp. And what the city did is they built a wall around the top of this mountain. You can see it on the screen behind me. It's called an Acropolis, and they built this wall, and according to ancient Greek literature, this Acropolis in Sardis was considered unconquerable, because basically you had walls around the whole thing and steep cliffs leading up to the walls. So they were like, there's no way that you could climb these cliffs and then scale the walls. You'd be discovered. There's no way to, to do that. You couldn't get an army a large group of men up close enough to the Acropolis to do damage to the walls. So you couldn't take battering rams up to knock the thing down. And so for centuries, this Acropolis was considered unpenetrable. You couldn't break it. And then there was this king, this king named Croesus. Again, I say this all the time. Moms, if you're looking for a name for your next child, Croesus. Does that just roll off the tongue? There's no way that child will be made fun at school. Croesus. So there's this king named Croesus. Croesus lived uh, in the mid-500s B.C. And he kind of got full of himself. He's like, yeah, I've got the unconquerable Acropolis, like nobody can take us down. And an army came and invaded, and he said, don't worry, guys, we can't be defeated. There's no way they can beat this wall and this, this mountain that our city sits on. We're fine. And they kind of took it easy. They did this. <sighs> they sat back and relaxed while the army was attacking. The army really couldn't do much. There was a, attacking the Acropolis. And so the people inside took it easy. They took a nap. They got out the comic section of the newspaper and read. And then one single man from the attacking army climbed the hillside, scaled the wall, snuck inside, and opened the front door. And the army got in and defeated the city. Conquered it completely. So now you've got a new, uh, our, a new king ruling over this city. And a few hundred years pass by and they kind of get cocky themselves. They go, okay, yeah, no one can defeat us. You know, we did it a few hundred years ago, but, but, but there's no way that anybody could do it now. Fast forward to 215 B.C. Same thing. The, the people of the city are, are inside and there's an attacking army. This is the Greeks attacking the city. And the people in the city did the same thing. They didn't learn their lesson. They sat back and they read their comics out of the newspaper. 
And they took it easy. And what do you think happened? Same exact thing. One man scaled the hillside, climbed the wall, snuck inside the city, walked up and just opened the front door. And the army came in and invaded, invaded and conquered the city. After that invasion, Sardis became a proverb about complacency. Oh, you don't want to be like Sardis. You're so complacent, you're going to be like Sardis. You're going to fall. Something bad is going to happen. And so it became this illusion, this proverb about being prideful and complacent where you're at. Now, keep this in mind because it actually plays into what Jesus is going to tell them. So take your Bibles or your apps or whatever you read on. Today, we're in Revelation 3. And we're going to begin in verse 1. Revelation 3, starting in verse 1. Keep in mind the history that I just told you. Because Jesus is going to, in a roundabout way, allude uh, to that. So Revelation 3, verse 1 through 6, it says this. And to the angel of the church in Sardis, write this. The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. This is not good so far, right? Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, and catch what he says here, I will come like a thief. And you will not know what hour I will come against you. Verse 4. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Jesus gives this letter to John to give to the church in Sardis. Now, uh, there is, I mentioned earlier, a basic structure to all of these letters that Jesus gives. So I want to put that basic structure. Here's all the elements that Jesus' letter to the churches in Revelation contain. So you've got this this basic structure. So the first thing we see in verse 1 is this title of Jesus, title of Christ. It says, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Well, I know this sounds confusing, but remember, if you haven't been with us, go back and listen to the very first message here. But I talked about how everything in Revelation almost is symbolic. It's meant to be interpreted through symbolism. And so when it talks about the seven spirits, there are other biblical references to this seven spirits, and those references allude to the Holy Spirit. So let me give you one of those references. Isaiah 11, verse 1 through 3. So Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 3, it says, There shall come forth from the shoot from a stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So this passage is about the coming of Jesus. Uh, the, anytime in the old, not anytime, but most of the time when you see a reference to a shoot coming from the stump of Jesse, that's a reference to Jesus. 
Continue on. And the spirit of the Lord will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. So this is talking about some spirit that sees things that we cannot see, hears things that we cannot hear. But I want you to notice the layout here. So second sentence, it says, and the spirit of thee, the second line right there, and the spirit of thee, it says this, the spirit of the Lord, so that's one, shall rest upon, um, shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom is number two, and understanding, that's three. The spirit of counsel, that's four, and might, that's five. The spirit of knowledge, that's six, and fear of the Lord, that's seven. And Jewish commentators back in the Old Testament were interpreting these seven titles to the Spirit. So there is this seven title thing that's happening in the Old Testament. And John is referring back to that when he says that I am the one who holds the seven spirits. He's referring back to this passage right here in Isaiah 11. So... He's describing the seven spirits of God that will be evident in the future king, this branch of Jesse. I encourage you, go read Isaiah 11 and see the connection points there. Then he talks about the seven stars. This is a repeat from the, book of, or the, the letter to Ephesus. So if you didn't hear that message and you want to understand the meaning of the seven stars, go back to uh, our message on the letter to the church in Ephesus. So now put the elements of uh, the, the letters of, that Jesus writes back. So we've got the title of Christ now. Now the next thing is the church's strengths. But here's the thing. Jesus doesn't list a strength. So, so if you're receiving this letter and you know that all the other churches except for one has had a strength conveyed to them, then you know that if you're not getting a strength listed, then maybe something's wrong, right? Maybe something is off. Maybe you need to pay attention to what Jesus is about to say. You see, he doesn't give a strength in the letter, so he breaks from the normal structure that he gives. But he does give this little concession. So look with me at verse 4. Chapter 3, verse 4, he, Jesus says this, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. So he does kind of talk about that there are some people in this church that are following him. But it's kind of a aside. It's a, it's a brief mention, not a strength that is given. Now, the clothes in white, that's a reference to purity and following Jesus. There are many times when the Old and New Testament makes references to somebody who's righteous being someone clothed in white. There's that illustration that's given. Now look with me at the passage again. Look with me at the second part of verse 1. There may be like a paragraph break in your Bible there, but it starts with, I know your works. Find that line. Look with me at what it says here. I know your works, that you have a reputation of being alive, but are dead. Now, let me ask you a question. Does that sound like a compliment to you? 
Your reputation, you think you're alive, but I, the one who holds the seven spirits and the seven stars, I know actually that you're dead. So it's not a compliment. This is their weakness. You see, their past deeds gave them this reputation of being alive. But something has happened. Something has changed from who they were as a church, where they were alive and thriving. And now that change has brought deadness. It has brought unhealth to this particular church. And so what is it? If you were once alive and thriving and doing good, and now you're not, that's complacency. Uh, Let me now jump into the main point for today. I call it my big idea. I I don't generally give three points because I don't think you're going to be able to go home and remember three or five points. I want you to remember one big point. I want you to take this home. I want you to weigh it against God's word and make sure that it's true. And then I want you to apply it to your life if it is in alignment with God's word. So today's big idea is this. Complacency is a deadly thief stealing the life from our belief. Did you catch the rhyme? I stole this, so don't like give me credit here. Complacency is a deadly thief stealing the life from our belief. The idea here is that when we live in complacency, It robs us. It takes things away from our faith. Uh, Complacency, let me define it real quick. Complacency is when we get so comfortable with our faith that we get lazy. And we decide that we don't need to do the things that Christ is calling us to do to be living out our faith. It's taking that passion that we once had, and since we don't maybe have it, maybe you're not as excited about Jesus emotionally as you were when you first came to know him, and so that excitement maybe has waned a little bit, and so you're like, "Uh, you know what, I've done a lot of work over the last few years for Jesus, so I'm just going to now take it easy. I've hit retirement in my faith. I've done a lot of work, and so I'm going to just spend the last few years of my faith taking it easy. Rather than going and serving, I'm going to go play some golf. Nothing against golf. Don't, I know there's a lot of golfers in here. I'm not saying that golf is bad. What I am saying is that sometimes our hobbies and our laziness and our distractions become more important than living out our faith. And that's what has begun happening here in this church We have, they've decided that who they are in Jesus, they don't have to live out the way they did when they first became a church. And guys, let me be honest, this happens to every area of our life, doesn't it? We have all gone through times in our jobs where we've gone, okay, I'm going to phone it in right now. I have preached hundreds of sermons. I think I have earned the right to sit and relax for this one, right? We've all done that with our jobs. We wake up, we had a rough night, didn't sleep much. And so we just do the bare minimum of what our job requires. That's hard. Most of us have done it in our marriage, haven't we? Or in our relationships or with our kids or with our friends. 
We've been, oh, I've been such a good spouse or, or mother or father or friend to so-and-so. And right now, I'm tired. I'm going to just coast. We do it in all the areas of our lives. It's who we are as human beings. We, we desire the easy. We desire the lazy. But we cannot allow that to happen with our walk with Christ. Uh, there's a theologian named Colin Hamer. I think it's Hemer, Hemmer, something like that. Um, he writes on this, and here's what he said. I'm going to put the quote on the screen behind me. Hopefully you can read it. It might be a little small. It says, the general purport is clear. In other words, the, the general idea is clear. And there is no hint here of outward persecution or inner heresy. So let me stop there. Almost all of the letters, these seven letters, talk about the church being persecuted and them giving in to the persecution. But that's not the case with Sardis. There's no mention of them being attacked or, or being persecuted or anything like that. Everything here is just them being lazy. Let me continue this quote. The distinctive character of the church's faith had rather been so far lost in the accommodation to society that it aroused no opposition. Lots of words. He's basically saying they've gotten so lazy and complacent in their faith that no one's even noticing that they're Christians, so there's no persecution. They're not getting persecution because no one even realizes they're living for Jesus. In other words, they're not living for Jesus at all. Let me continue. Spiritual poverty and complacency were thus leading the church into moral error. In other words, they were so lazy that their morality had died. Their living for Jesus had died. Their living out the fruit of the Spirit had died. You could go into this city and find the church and you would never know that they were followers of Jesus because they were just phoning it in. They were just coasting. Doing the bare minimum. So, there, lack, there was a lack of awareness. That's why Jesus is calling this out. But they needed to begin living their faith out again. Now, let me ask you this. In what areas of your life are you phoning it in? As I prepared for this message, I've been really convicted about the ways in my own life that I kind of just coast I kind of just do the bare minimum. I do just enough to think, well, this will satisfy Jesus, but I'm not going to do more. We all have areas where we are complacent. It's human nature. I think for us, it's trying to be self-aware enough to recognize those areas of complacency and ask the Holy Spirit to begin changing us in those areas, right? We have to be open to the idea that we're not perfect. So your life in Jesus is going to look different than my life in Jesus. I get paid to be here. Let's be honest, right? I get paid to stand up here. I get paid to show up in the office Monday through Thursday. You don't get paid to be here. Well, Keith does. But none of the rest of you get paid to be here. <laughs> that much. <laughs> The idea is that my life as a follower of Jesus and the things I do and the way I live is going to be different than yours. 
Maybe you're a parent with littles, and your life is consumed with parenting. Okay, I get that. Does that mean you can't serve in some way? Maybe you're a retiree, and you've got that attitude of, I'm retired. That means I take it easy. Can I just say you never retire from being a follower of Jesus? There's no such thing as retiring in your faith. As a matter of fact, I would challenge some of you retirees. 1 Corinthians 7 talks about how a single person has, uh, that we should be glad for those who are single because they have more time to dedicate to doing the work of the Lord. Retirees, you're in the same boat. You're not confined to working a nine-to-five job, and you now have time that you didn't have previously to serve your Savior and lead every generation to the life-changing hope of Jesus. How are you spending your retirement? Are you in your faith doing just the bare minimum? Or are you taking your retirement and utilizing it to lead people to Him? Maybe, you know, maybe like we've got our camera going. Maybe you're a shut-in or you're disabled or a widow or a widower. For those of you, maybe there's prayer ministry or administration. There's something you can be doing for the body of Christ. Here's my warning. Don't let complacency settle in. Don't get lazy in your faith. Live it out actively. Let's wrap this up. Look with me in verse 2. It says, wake up. Oh, I don't like to wake up. Do you? I'm not a morning person. I will tell you that right now. When my alarm clock goes off, I'm not the one that shoots out of bed. I'm like, yeah, let's go. That's not me. So when Jesus says right here, wake up, I'm like, oh, I connect with that. I identify with that. Wake up. Open your eyes to the thing that you're not aware of, this complacency that you're not seeing. Wake up to it and look at what he says here. Strengthen what remains but is about to die. You know what you need to do. You know how you need to live. You need to know how you need to share your faith and live in Jesus and and pray and, and all those things. Do it before it's completely dead. Verse three, remember then what you received and heard. I love this part. Keep it. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I'll come like a thief and you will not know what hour I come. Wake up. Strengthen what remains. You've got it in you. You've got the Holy Spirit. All you need to do is begin living for him again. And then it wraps up the last part of uh, verse 3 into 4. I will come like a thief and you will not know the hour that I will come against you. So he's saying, here's the negative consequence. If you're not going to wake up, just like your city that got invaded and conquered, when you thought you had everything together and you couldn't be conquered, I'm going to come like that. I'm going to come when you least expect it. And it's not going to be good. That's the negative that Jesus brings. Look at verse 4, what the positive. He says, yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments. So he he talks about how they're still worthy. They've They've not lived in complacency. 
And so he talks about how he will keep their names in the book of life. Book of life, there's lots of Old and New Testament references, but basically this is the book that contains the names of those who are saved in Jesus. And so the question today is this, if complacency is a deadly thief stealing the life from our belief, then how are we, how are you, how am I, how are we going to overcome complacency? Let's call it out. Most of us in this room live pretty comfortable lives, right? You don't shake your head or raise your hand, just, just in your mind. You've got food on the table. Your air conditioner usually runs in the summer. You live an okay life. Has that comfort invaded to the point that you refuse to be uncomfortable for Jesus? How many of us simply need to recognize I'm sitting in a chair reading a comics section and this is not the call of Jesus in my life. This is not what I'm called to do. How many of us need to say, as I have recognized I need to do these last couple of weeks as I've written this sermon, how many of us need to say, okay, I can come back to this when I'm in heaven in eternity with Jesus. Right now I'm going to get to work. I'm going to do the work and I'm going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to go serve in our community. I'm going to go serve in the church. I'm going to have that uncomfortable conversation with my neighbor about why I'm a believer in Jesus. And I'm going to invite them in to the gospel. And I'm going to invite them to church. What do you need to do to overcome complacency? Join me in prayer. Almighty God, we thank you so much for today. We praise you for who you are, for what you've done in our lives. And Lord, I pray today that you would help each and every one of us recognize the ways that we are living in complacency and that instead of continuing in it, that instead we would overcome it and we would live for you. That we would not be afraid of being uncomfortable, that we would not be afraid of getting to work for you. Lord, we thank you for all you've done. We praise you for saving us and bringing us to know you. And I pray that if there's anyone here today who does not know you, who has not come to that place, I pray that they would come and talk to us this morning. But Lord, help us to live for you. We thank you, Lord, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.